This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the Eurit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Survivor-centric is a term that has moved from the fringes of crisis leadership and emergency management to the mainstream over the past decade. In that time, has been a growing realization of just how complex an undertaking can be. Survivors of traumatic incidents have varying degrees of physical, emotional, and financial needs. Agencies and communities run the full gamut of readiness to meet those needs. My guest today has experience working with the survivors of terrorism and other violent mass casualty incidents. Day 48 is one of the Boston Marathon bombing survivors who has founded the One World Strong Foundation. They now provide advice and assistance worldwide. The foundation is quiet by design as they offer both help and respect to those affected by traumatic events. Their work, however, needs to be known more broadly. It's compassionate, it's innovative, it's a moving example of survivors helping survivals. People who joined a club none of them wanted to be in, yet from which they each gained strength and hope. Dave, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thank you, Eric. Honored to be here with you. It's really a pleasure. It's always great to get together with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Now, One World Strong started organically after survivors of the Boston Marathon bombings were offered support from military veterans. Can you give us some of the backstory? Sure. Yeah, it was um, the backstory to, to the whole thing is that the, the marathon is um, broadcast live around the world. And there were a couple of Marine veterans um, that had been seriously injured. I think it was one in, a, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And they were watching the marathon and they saw the bombings. Um, they knew what they were. They knew what the bombs would cause for injuries. And they made it their mission to connect with the folks within their, within their fund to say, how do we get to Boston to help these people? Um, we know what they're going to be going through. You know, what do we what do we need to do to get there? And they made it work. They connected with people in Boston. They found people that they knew, made a lot of phone calls, and they were with us within days of the, the bombings in Boston. They were connecting in hospitals, um, the rehab center that was set up quickly. Um, we're actually seeing emails come through about their visits. And I give Boston credit because there's a lot of cities that wouldn't have allowed visits like that. It's it's different now, 10 years later, 11 years later. But at the time, it was something very unique. Um, You know, and these are folks that that saw what had happened. They had told their their brothers and their sisters that they had served with what they saw. And to the person, I still I, I believe they had to turn people away from coming to Boston to to visit us and and Eric, it was those visits that you know I didn't know it at the time, and this is what I'll, you know we can talk about this. I, I hope Boston did a fantastic job of of not marginalizing the Boston bombings or hiding from it or pretending they didn't happen. And I mean that to mean you know not having not having an impact tourism in the city, but. They actually reached out to the survivor community, and the more 
events that we would go to as as survivors of that event of those two bombings the the more stories we would hear you know, i come from a process and a, and a network optimization background so i'm constantly looking for you know what works and how do we apply it to other places and i would continuously hear at these events people would ask you know when are you going to you know how do you know you were going to be okay and you know when did you know you were going to be okay and I would continuously hear the answer of when I was visited by so-and-so from the Semper Fi and America's Fund. And it became very clear to me because I had been visited as well. And, you know, I had some of those same experiences of what that connection means. And along the way, Eric, you know, I learned that this didn't really happen in a lot of places. This was something new, but it was the hospitals in Boston, the personnel, EMS um, city leadership in Boston that allowed this to happen. And it's a, it is, it is the reason that we're doing what we're doing today globally. And so how did that first experience you say was sort of unique? It hadn't been done before. How did that transform into what you're doing now where you're now one world storm and you're going to a lot of places and, and sort of paying that forward? Yeah, it's, it's for us, we're, we're very careful about how we do go somewhere um, you know, I'll say I'll say right up front, we do not go somewhere unless we're connected with local authorities that are responding to the events, because we will, I do not ever want us to be in the way of something. And hopefully we can talk a little bit about that today, too, because I see that happening now in communities where people claiming to be survivors or maybe survivors just show up. But for us, that connection really starts with we, we felt the need to go out and help others. And that, that inflection point for us was in, uh, if, you, if you remember, there were a nightclub shooting in Orlando. Yes. Holtz um, nightclub. And I was in Chicago at the time doing the work that I was doing at the time. And my phone lit up like a Christmas tree. It was people in Boston that you know, we were connected with through the city, other survivors that wanted to reach out and help and and connect. I, I remember the words exactly because they were coming from different people. Let's connect with those folks that have been impacted the way that the veterans came and connected with us. And I, I had never put anything like this together before, but we were able to make connections through JetBlue, Airbnb, and Uber. And we were able to get 10 people from Boston to Orlando. But getting there, Eric, was getting there was actually the easy part. Finding the right people to connect with in the city, at the hospital network, within within police, within EMS. And then I'll never forget three days before we were scheduled to go down, I received a phone call from the FBI saying, hey, Dave, you know, this and the reason we know the folks from the FBI is, is because we're all given somebody to work with through victims assistance at the FBI mm -hmm. when these things happen. So the call that I received, though, was because they had heard that we were going down to Orlando and it was a heads up call saying, hey, we wanted you to know we've tried this. You've got to be really careful. It hasn't worked in some areas because you've got the wrong people there. They, they become triggered and they actually can do more harm than good. And I hadn't really considered that. Right. We're kind of a ragtag group of people. There was no 
one world strong at the time. It was just a, a, a bunch of folks from Boston that wanted to reach out and help. So for, for a few nights there, I kind of stared at the ceiling going, okay, <laughs> how's this gonna, how's this gonna work? <laughs> you know, short-lived project, but but we had the right people and and I and how I think I knew was because there was no social media at all. There were nobody's posting with a picture with a plane behind them or look what I'm doing, look where I'm going. And that's really the, the core of what One World is. It's the simple piece that people want to reach out and help others. And that's what happened in Orlando. And I watched it happen, Eric. I, we were in hospital rooms with folks there that did not speak English. Their families didn't speak English. They were told to through a translator who we were and, and why we wanted to visit them and and to you know to help understand and to help in their healing process and to help them with a new normal and very and, and doing all the things that the folks that came to see us did. And, and and mind you, this is a few years after Boston, right? Right. So we were still in contact with folks that came to visit us from the Semper Five Fund. One of the first things they said to us is, you know, here's my number, here's my email. I don't care if you call me tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, we're going to be here for you. To this day, we are still in contact with many of the folks that, that came to see us. And we were doing the same thing with survivors and family members that had lost loved ones in Orlando. And it was a it was a learning curve being down there and and being in the hospitals and seeing everything. But we had connections in the hospital that wanted us there. And I don't know if I've ever shared this with you before, but we actually had I found out this after we left. But they allowed us to come visit because they knew we didn't want anything. We weren't asking for pictures. We weren't asking for anything. We were just asking to connect. And that's why they let us come down. And I found out later that they had turned down a trip from the White House because they didn't want pictures. They didn't want fanfare. They didn't want media. They simply wanted survivors to be able to rest, connect, do the things that they needed to do to start moving forward. And leaving Orlando, I remember looking out the window of the plane, thinking to myself, you know, okay, there's really something to this, right? There's this, there's, I've felt it myself. I've now seen it in other places. We had done some events in Newtown with 9-11 families, with other ones just kind of getting together. And you'd see these bonds form almost instantly with folks that have been through something similar. You don't have to, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to retell the entire story. People simply understand. And that trip to Orlando was the part that started us down the road of, okay, do we, I, I, Orlando was, Eric, I went looking for an organization that could do this. I had my okay. own business at the time. I didn't want to start anything else. <laughs> and I know nothing about nonprofits. I still learn every day about that. But the, the thing that really stuck to me is that we couldn't find an organization that was doing what we were trying to do globally without regard to race, religion, ethnic background, color, politics, none of that stuff matters, just people helping people. And I had a few frustrating trips to the UN because I thought for sure they must have something. The I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and again, it came down to, uh, in Orlando, I was you know, looking out the plane window thinking, 
yeah, I could volunteer, you know, you know, maybe five hours a month to something like this, right? That would be a good thing. Other people would do the same thing. Um, but it was an event in Somalia that was the really the 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 turning corner for okay, let's form this. That's actually truly after that one was when we started the paperwork for it. There was a bombing in, in Mogadishu. Um, close to 600 people were killed, one bomb, um, 300 and some odd people missing, 300 and some odd people injured. Uh, I mean, you you can't toss a coin on, you know, or a rock down the street anywhere in, in Mogadishu and not touch somebody who's been impacted by trauma. Mm-hmm. But it was that event because that event itself, we saw the we saw the 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 services that we received in Boston and the outpouring of support that came in globally. You know, I know, I mean, most of your folks know that are listening to this. You don't get that in many other countries around the world. And right. you're, you're lucky to get patched up correctly. Forget about what comes next, you know, what comes in the healing process. You know, you're lucky to get patched up and, and out the door and kind of good luck. That was why we formed One World, to figure out how do we do this? How do we reach out to others? Um, and that's really what got the whole thing going. It, it's really an incredible story. And it is, on the one hand, so simple, human to human, but so complex because of the environment in which you have to do it and the number of agencies and organizations that have to get involved at some level. Yep. But what's always impressed me when I hear the story is, it shows how survivors, and again, these are people we used to call victims not that long ago, but now calling survivors, which I think is a really important linguistic change. They're really reclaiming their agency by helping others. So it's really about a journey forward, or what we at the NPLI call of leading across to peers. Yep. How have you and your team created the space and the principles to enable these special relationships flourish? I think a lot of it, Eric, actually started in... Um... Gosh, in late 2013, <laughs> I was at the, I was at Spalding Rehab, and the the BAA had sent out an email inviting everybody that had been injured, impacted in the marathon bombings, um, an entry to the 2014 marathon to run, mm-hmm. or they could have somebody run for them. And I was running the day that I was injured in Boston. I was just about to finish. So I be kind of I kind of became known as the runner in this group that I was in at Spalding. <laughs> and <laughs> very shortly after that email arrived, because we all had phones that told us it was there, um, you know, people were getting excited and they started to say, you know, we, we, this is a way to kind of reclaim, reclaim the finish line, right? And you know, kind of reclaiming your life as opposed to being defined by something, you could go out and redefine it. And I remember watching that happen live, but the, the part that scared me was people started asking me questions about running. And I'm a, I'm about the last person you want to ask questions. I mean, people were asking me, you know, I've got this with my foot or my, my ankle does this. And, <laughs> oh God, I'm going to cause problems. But, but we had, um, I was running for Dana Farber at the time um, when I was running Boston. And there was a gentleman there named Jack Fultz, who was their trainer. And Jack was fantastic because, you know, much like many things along the story of what One World is, we reach out to folks that are plugged in, that understand the 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 how to do th- certain things. And 
Jack is one of those people and had a great training program. And he offered to train anybody that wanted to participate in the Boston Marathon. We put together a training program for everybody. And we had 28 people that were injured that day, 2000 in, in April 15th, 2013. We then had 28 people start and finish the Boston Marathon in 2014. And it was that group of people that then started reaching out to others with you know the, the power of movement, um, whether it's running, climbing, hiking, um, you, you name it. But it's a way to reconnect, to reclaim what's going on. And that's really formed that foundation of what we would do to help others is to find what works for them, um, to offer opportunities to help them move forward. That was really the cornerstone of what we put together. So that really sounds to me like you're, you're doing some deep listening, you're sort of building bottom up and not trying to impose a framework from above, but as you, as you say, figure out what's working for people and then being able to share it. Yeah, because every, everybody's, everybody's different, Eric, right? Nobody heals the same way. Um, you know, everybody, it, different people take different time to heal. There's no one way to do something in the healing process. There's options that we can present, but I think the biggest piece that we learned in all of this, connection is the first thing that you need to make, is work on those connections. The rest of it will start to come, but it doesn't happen by just showing up and knocking on doors. Um, you need to be invited into that community. You need to become a part of that community. And we've, we've, that was a big learning lesson for us. And Orlando really showed that. Um, when we understood what they did to bring us into the community, we've continued to carry that forward since that day. Well, that's great. And it's a great lesson. So, you know, unfortunately, too many communities are suffering mass casualty events these days. Are there general lessons you would impart to the leaders in those communities supporting the injured and wounded? Are there some best practices and what might some of the misconceptions be that can lead to, to missteps or even uh, causing more harm after the fact? Sure. I, I think one of the biggest missteps we see, Eric, is, is going into it with what people think is a playbook. Um, like, okay, this is what we need to do. And, you know, Boston did a lot of things great. They also made some mistakes. And some of the things they did great, they created an atmosphere to bring the community together. Um, dinners, concerts, sporting events, people got to know each other. I think the the an example of that for me personally would be the dinners that the city put together. I, I live 50 minutes outside the city, but I would go in to these events because my kids were on the street that day to watch me finish the Boston Marathon. Thankfully, they were far enough away from both bombings, but they saw the bombings. And thankfully, they didn't see the aftermath of it. But the biggest thing for me as a parent is that I was, you know, what, what impact did this have on my kids, right? These, these are, you know, one was not even a, a, a teenager yet. The other one had just become a teenager. And what impact is this going to have on them going forward? And at those, at those events that the city put together, they had social workers there. Nobody's dressed in a white lab coat, right? They're just mixed in, talking to everybody, getting to know. I think it was about nine months after we were at one of these events. You know, there's several of them that you could go to. 
But it was about nine months later, one of the folks came up to me and I, I had seen her at Spalding and, and you know, I knew that she had been talking to the to my girls just in the in the in these settings, not not like a professional setting, just you know, in these dinners. And she came up and uh, I'll never forget, she said, you know, your your kids are gonna be okay. They're gonna be fine. And I had the biggest sigh of relief, but that all came from connection, Eric. And that came from the city. That wasn't anybody doing it, right? That was the city saying, we need to do these things. It was Mayor Menino at the time. But the events are what really did that. And I think sometimes cities shy away from that. We, we, we do see it happen from time to time where they quickly want to get past the event to not be known that that's what this was, right? It, you, you're defining a city by the event. And right. again, they don't want to hurt tourism. They don't want to hurt certain things. They want to just move past this, um, you know, sweep up the flowers that people are laying, sweep all that stuff. Okay, well, let's, let's, and they talk about it as let's move on. And, and moving on is fine, but you've got to connect with that community that's been impacted so that you understand what does moving on mean to them? Yeah. And, and then helping them with that. And a lot of that is forgotten. You know, Boston did, did the, did the parts right about getting people together. The mistake, one of the mistakes that they made was they put a brick and mortar resilience center in the middle of the city without understanding who was going to use it. Most of the people impacted lived way outside the city and couldn't mm -hmm. get there. And consequently, millions were poured into some of these things before people realized, well, well nobody's going. That's because nobody can get there, right? This is Boston. Right. You know what driving in and out of Boston is like. Yeah, it's, it's tough on a good day. and uh... Right, exactly, exactly. And and so those are some of the playbook things that get put into place by cities rather than, okay, let's sit down and really understand the community that's been impacted. Where are they from? You know, are, are they from right in the city? Are they from the outskirts? You know, you know, after after COVID, doing a lot of things virtually is acceptable now. And you know, before it might not have been. So cities can adapt and use that technology. There's technology that also exists now for connecting with communities that don't speak that English isn't that first, is not their first language. So we've been adopting all of these things into what we do now. But the the biggest thing are for are for cities and those working with communities at the core to really understand what their needs are going to be. And, you know, in Boston, it was a lot about amputations. It was a lot about burns, um, severe trauma to the body and, and, and quite frankly, mentally to folks as well. And those were the big things that they really put forward. And that's where, Again, it was one of those things that that we felt compelled because of the services we received to try to reach out to others to do the same thing. Because even in parts of this country, you know, you're you'll get patched up, but you know what comes next is still a question. So, to all of our listeners out there who are thinking they're listening to this, saying, "I'm going to put together a playbook," first thing you do is write, put down the playbook. Um, <laughs> And I think you're right. I mean, it's, I think, to me, this is why it's so important to, you've got to have principles behind something. And if it is connect with the community, find out the needs of the community, meet the needs of the community, those kind of things can be consistent. But it's again, you're not going to pay, turn to page five of the playbook and find here are the right. exact things you have to do. Yep, and, exactly. Uh, 
and as I think back to that too, I think one of the things we were very fortunate here was that it was it was Mayor Menino uh, at the time. And who those of you who are not from or familiar with Boston, he was in his fifth term, the longest serving mayor in the history of the city, very much a guy of the neighborhoods, um, not a big flashy politician. And so he is someone who would get the stuff from the heart right. Um, yeah. And I think that was that was uh, a, a fortunate coincidence that he was still here at that time. He passed away shortly thereafter, um, yeah. but really, really fortunate there. So, okay, we're not doing a playbook, but what are some of the ways you, you think that the professional emergency management, public safety, and the disaster response agencies can incorporate this knowledge into what they're doing? Because they, they do need to do planning. They do have to have protocols. Yeah, How can th they think about this in a way that's going to actually let them harvest this knowledge and put it to use? Well, I, I think it's to talk with you guys, Eric, not to not to talk. <laughs> the the more I the more I learned about what NPLI does um, and and how they do it, um, it, it really is you're plugging into a network, much like we do. You know, you're plugging into a network of folks that have been through some similar things, and that's where I really think the rubber hits the road in this is connecting with people that have been through something similar. You have a network out there, um, and and you know that that kind of spider web of network continues to grow, where you can rely on others um, that have been through something similar to talk to them about what they experienced when these things happen, or or not when they think, but but even before, making it a part of your role um, as a leader in a community to connect with folks, to connect with people from Orlando, to connect with people from Boston that have done these things, that have connected California, and quite frankly, connecting in other countries as well, because some of what we've seen, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you the example, and I can't remember whether you've heard this one or not, but there was a, an attack um, at a mosque um, in Quebec City. Mm -hmm. So multiple people were killed, multiple people were injured, definitely trauma of, of watching what had happened to folks there. We actually, Marty Walsh was in office and, you know, we went to Marty at the time, you know, one world was just, you know, starting to come together. It was becoming a thing and we, it wasn't formalized yet, but it was, it was becoming. And we got a hold of Marty because we didn't have any connections in Canada. And Marty actually wrote a letter to uh, and, and I say this because I just saw Marty last week in Washington at the conference of mayors. He was speaking there, and you know, we were kind of we were talking about this letter. And he wrote this letter to the to the mayor of Quebec City, introducing survivors from Boston that wanted to come visit and connect um, with people there. But it just went blank. It went dark. We'd never hear anything back. Um, and it took. It took about 10 months to actually hear back from folks in Quebec City. And it was because they had some people in Boston, um, part of a trade mission between Quebec and, and, and Boston, and they had asked to meet with us. And I didn't understand the reason for the meeting until they were actually back in Canada and we got some feedback. But that feedback was... Having met the people from Boston, we we feel good about them coming here now. But originally, they could not understand why people that had been injured by Muslims would want to help Muslims. Wow. In this day and age, right? That was, I was floored when I heard that. And then it 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 really 
kicked in again because myself and another survivor from Boston went up there for their one year anniversary. So it took us one year to get there. And some of the people listening to this probably know that the anniversary is is at the end of January in Quebec City. So you're not in your shorts uh, <laughs> no. or T-shirt. And, and I grew up in upstate Vermont, and I thought that was cold. You go a few, few notches north and it gets colder. But we were there for two days specifically to say hello to the imam and maybe, maybe meet a few people to kind of get that connection started. And... We were sitting across the street in a coffee shop. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. We were going to meet with the imam. The imam comes over and uh, from the mosque. And I could see from where I was sitting, I could see the mosque across the street. He comes over. We talk for about 30 seconds. He smiles. He's really happy because, excuse me, he steps away. And, and this part is the part I love because I'll never forget it because he, he had a flip phone. <laughs> <And> <laughs> He flipped up his phone, made you know, pushed all the buttons, and uh, I, yeah, I could hear him talking to somebody, but I, I don't understand Arabic. Um, the next thing I know, I'm, I'm looking out the window and I see the door open up to the mosque, and all these people started piling out and coming over to the cafe, and oh, that was that meeting was really a changing moment in what we were doing because. We never thought the, the the city of Quebec, when it when it happened, when the event happened, they dropped dropped. I call it a cone of silence, such a cone of silence over that community, not mm -hmm. allowing any in. Um, but what we learned that day at ten o'clock in the morning, Eric, we were supposed to be there a half hour, forty five minutes, just to maybe open some doors and get some things started. We did not leave that group. We were invited to all their events that night. You know, we were there with the with the prime minister. We were we got to be with them till I think we left at two in the morning, um, wow. the following. And we have now had folks from that mosque travel to New Zealand to connect with folks after Christchurch, to connect in places in North Africa, to connect in places in Europe. Um, they have reached out to help others, but what, what they were amazed at is they thought because they were Muslim, nobody cared about them because nobody could get to them. NGOs couldn't reach them. There was nobody to yeah. reach. The city dropped that cone of silence on it. And this is something that they have now gone out and been able to pass forward to other communities as well. So it's things like that that leaders of cities and 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 folks can tap into. That's a really really moving and powerful story. Now, what's on the horizon? I know you're doing some work in Ukraine. Can you briefly give us an idea of what uh, what you're thinking about there? Sure. Um, actually, was was on calls in Israel today too. Of of all things, so Ukraine and the Middle East are um, big topics, as as everybody knows at the moment. But right now we're in Ukraine and that has to do with connections that we've made in cities that we visited um, and, and by events. And this one was actually driven by the mayor of Greater Manchester um, in the north of England. Uh, we had responded to his city uh, back. There was, uh, if you remember the Ariana Grande bombing. Ariana Grande yeah, concert, yes. Yeah. So we had connected through the State Department there. Mm -hmm. um, 
with a program called the International Visitors Leadership, which I think you guys are a part of. I saw I saw NPLI on a list that um, a group from Ukraine is going to be visiting with, along with One World, um, in a few weeks. And uh, I, I saw it come across today, actually. But oh, good. Um, looking forward yeah, to that. But, yeah, but what we're doing there is the mayor of Greater Manchester was going through the airport. The mayor of Lviv in Ukraine was was headed to Liverpool for an event. And the mayor of Greater Manchester's name is Andy Burnham. We've actually become very good friends. He came to Boston to run the marathon with us. He had brought over families that had lost children in that bombing to connect with families here in Boston. Again, it's really about connection. And Andy at the airport, in typical fashion, asked the mayor of Lviv, you know, what are your biggest challenges? And he said, veterans coming back, civilians that have been injured, we're, we have thousands of people in our city. They're not near the front lines, but that's where everybody's going for services. And he listed out the, the physical and mental trauma that people have experienced. And uh, I guess to put it to put it kind of bluntly and shortly, uh, Andy said, I've got this bald guy in Boston that I need to connect you to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's really what started in a series of phone calls. Um, and we started off with, um, you know, it was it was Andy and myself. We were together for a, a meeting in Oslo the very next day in Norway. And uh, we got together at the end of the night and spent a couple hours um, at a pub just talking about how we, as, as leaders, as a city leader, as NGOs, how can we help Ukraine, right? We, we can't send guns and bullets and tanks. It's not what we can do. How do we connect locally? So that started a process of we went looking for organizations that could connect with Ukraine with needs that they have. So we had calls in um, Lviv with the mayor, with the vice mayor, with the gentleman that handles the the local um, and the, and the woman that the gentleman and, and woman that handle the foundation called Unbroken, and then the hospital network within Lviv to start to hear some of their their needs. And along the way, we started to hear more things than what we would do, right? More things than what One World could produce, more than what the Semper Fi and America's Fund could produce. But I made one phone call that night um, when I wrapped up with Andy um, in Oslo. I made one phone call, and it was to the, the founder of Semper Fi and America's Fund. And I didn't even complete the sentence, Eric, of asking if she'd be willing to help veterans overseas to connect that peer to peer. And uh, I wasn't done with the, the, with the sentence and she had already said yes. And we've now had over 20 virtual meetings. I've been to Lviv once um, back in September to spend a week with folks on the ground there. We've been to Krakow, Poland twice to connect with people there. We've connected with a family, um, we were actually, we were with this family. The story is is rough, but it, it I think is getting much better for the family. They had lost their dad to cancer five years ago. Um, they were living near the front lines when the war started and they were trying to head, head west to get away from the war. 
and the train station that they were in was there was a missile attack at the train station. I believe 60 plus people were killed. This young girl who was 12 at the time lost both her legs. Her mom lost a leg and her son and, and Yana's brother witnessed all of this. And they were recuperating in the city of Leave, and we had gone over to help install uh, a TV antenna on the side of the on the side of the building for them so that they could they could watch TV. But I noticed a pair of running blades in the corner as we were there, small running blades. So obviously they were for a child. And we started talking. To make a very long story short, Yana is now going to be coming to Boston um, this April to do the 5K event with many of the survivors here in Boston. She'll have a chance to meet others. She's coming over with her mom, her brother, an interpreter, one of the folks from the city's coming over. So we're doing things like that. We're connecting with the community. We're going to do the same thing with veterans there. And it's really about what the city needs. It's it's much more than just the physical, mental. There's things that the city needs to, they need H, best practices for HR. They, they need equipment for the the hospitals. There's a lack of drugs that fight infection. There's a lack of of labs that tell you what the infections are. So things are getting worse. Um, you know, my my injuries were minor in Boston, but they could have been a lot worse in Ukraine because just of the amount of issues that they're facing. Uh, I'm I'm probably going much too long for what you well, folks want to hear about, but no, it's good, and it's it's good it's good that you're you're in there early and you're you're anticipating what's going to be needed. And so I have just one last question for you, and in about sixty seconds or so, my last question for every guest is, what gives you hope? But before you answer that, I want to say what gives me hope is talking to people like you because the work you and your the others who are in your network are doing is just so extraordinary and I think so necessary. And uh, and thank you for continuing to do it. I know it was a diversion from what you were <clears throat> doing prior to prior to running the marathon that year. Uh, but what important work it is, and how much we can learn from you. So I I want to say you give me hope. But what gives you hope? Actually, Eric, it's conversations like this where where hopefully folks at at the city level can hear how important that that grassroots piece is, and I see it more and more. The that grassroots leadership in cities, right? We we've we've got a federal government that does things, and and you know that that's wonderful, but it's the cities, small communities that really make the difference. Um, and I see people not going through the motions, but actually wanting to make things better, and that's the part that gives me hope. We want to be able to reach other communities to to offer that. Hopefully, communities never have to go through this, right? So people that come through your program never have to see some of these things or have to deal with it. But in the event that they do, they've got others that they can go to. They've got lessons that they can draw on that might not be their own, but others. That's the part that gives me hope. It's folks like yourself, Eric, and the others that are that are building this. Well, thank you. That's a great note to end on. And again, thank you for your for your work and the work of all those who were in, involved with One World Strong. Uh, my guest for this episode has been Dave Fortier, co-founder of One World Strong. And until next time, remember that you're it. Be ready to lead when it matters most. Be
This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.